1: Every month of the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, and there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, May 16th, 2011. In the Truth is Stranger Than Fiction category, (laughs) we're going to do our light edition today. Sorry, I can't give you all the details as to what the complications are in my uh, particular schedule at the moment, but never worry, I've got a fantastic program lined up for you today. Mm -mm. And it involves a Reformed guy talking about Martin Luther. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, well we got to do the mop up work. We got to do the clean up work. And why? The reason why is because ultimately we are set free from the deception of the devil. We are set free from bondage to sin, to death, to the devil, to deception, to lies, and we are set free to love God and love our neighbor. We're set free to to tr- truly uh, delight in what God has uh, commanded us to do and it it seems counterintuitive and so false doctrine is a form of satanic deception that actually impedes you from properly loving and serving God and properly loving and serving your neighbor it's a form of satanic deception that really is designed to snare you and to deceive you and point you away from our great God and Savior Jesus Christ and point you towards something else, some other bright shiny object, maybe even point you towards yourself but rather than Christ and him crucified for our sins. And so doctrine matters. Doc doctrine is not a four-letter word. Doctrine is one of those things that matters. It 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 separates light from darkness. It separates truth from error. It separates satanic deception from the true freedom that we have in Christ and him crucified for our sins. So that's why we do what we do. It's a service to you, and hopefully then you pay it forward. I don't particularly care for that phrase, but what I mean by that is, is that you pay it forward in helping to release your neighbor from the bondage that he or she may be in uh, to false teaching and deception so that they may come into the glorious light of our merciful, forgiving, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who purchased us and won us by his shed blood on the cross. That's really what it's all about. So, okay, now here's the deal. Uh, Because of time constraints today, I will not be doing a full-blown episode of Fighting for the Faith. Instead, what I'm going to be doing is playing a fantastic lecture from uh, Carl Truman. We played him last Friday, Dr. Carl Truman from Westminster Theological Seminary, and uh, he recently gave a uh, a conference speech entitled, A Clear and Present Word, Martin Luther and the Clarity of Scripture. Now listen, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm gloating, but I'm gloating. <laughs> the reason I'm gloating is because I love it when I hear a Reformed guy giving a lecture on Martin Luther and his view of Scripture. It's just... Ah, music to my ears. It, it <laughs> yeah, someday somewhat somebody somewhere is going to get the uh, the satisfaction later in my life of ha- having me deliver a lecture on uh something to do with John Calvin. It and uh, it I know it, what goes around comes around. So, because I'm gloating uh, over the fact that Carl Truman, a reformed guy is um, giving a lecture regarding Martin Luther's view of the of the clarity or perspe- perspicuity of Scripture, that, that, uh, that, there's some, that there's some kind of weird justice in the world. Yeah, I, my fear is that now somebody's going to ask me to deliver a lecture on John Calvin's view of Scripture or something to that effect. Or maybe I'll have to give a, a lecture somewhere on John Calvin's view of total depravity given by a Lutheran. Oh, could you imagine the day that... <laughs> anyway... sorry, sorry, sorry. Like I said, I don't want to sound like I'm gloating, but I'm gloating. But anyway, it's a fantastic lecture. You will find it very edifying and it's very well done. And Dr. Carl Truman actually knows his stuff. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Carl Truman, a clear and present word, Luther and the clarity of scripture. Here we go.
0: Confess that uh, getting Ryan to read that passage was a little bit of self-indulgence. It was the passage that was read at my ordination and it's one of my favourite passages in all of Scripture and always sends a shiver down my spine uh, to hear it read. But it's also relevant to tonight because it indicates very clearly, if you read the the chapter as a whole, and and I do think that it is one of the, the key chapters in the book of Job, it's one of the hinges on which the book as a whole turns, it's very clear there that wisdom ultimately cannot be found within man himself. but Wisdom is something that comes from the Lord. And that, I think, connects directly with what I want to talk about this evening. Martin Luther on the clarity of Scripture, because one cannot separate Martin Luther's understanding of Scripture from his understanding of Christianity as a whole. And as I already said, I think it was last night uh, I I made this reference, uh, Luther talks about salvation as being a word that comes from outside. Salvation is not something we find within ourselves. Salvation is something that is spoken by God to us. But I want to talk, uh, we have to, in my talk time, I need to give a little bit of historical background before we come to uh, address directly the issues uh, that Martin Luther draws out on the matter of the perspicuity of clarity of scripture. Martin Luther, uh, uh, I think if if you were here for the last time I was at uh, Desert Springs, I talked about the career of Martin Luther, or was it the time before that? I, I can't remember. I do remember one of the local Lutheran pastors came in to, to check me out and make sure that I wasn't misleading people uh, on the theology of Martin Luther. Um, but if you, if you were there for that, you remember Luther hits the, the, sort of the, the, the international headlines around about 1517, 1518. There's been a, a crisis within his parish, Uh, A man has arrived in the neighbouring parish selling indulgences. I won't go into the the technicalities of indulgences tonight, but essentially this person has been telling people that the grace of God can be bought for a mere cash transaction without any transformation of the heart, without any grasping of God's word by faith. And Luther launches a protest against this. He, he, He nails on the castle door at Wittenberg 95 points for debate. Uh, He's not intending to split the church at that point, let alone uh, form a a completely new uh, denomination. He's merely wanting a debate to establish the church's position on these indulgence things. And if you've read the 95 Theses, it's amazing that the 95 Theses ever became a, a popular rallying cry for the Reformation. You need a reasonably good grasp of late medieval theology, even to understand what they're saying. In the grace and, prov- the grace and in the providence of God, this rather arcane medieval pamphlet became a rallying cry for Reformation. And in the coming years, uh, Luther, as Luther's theology developed, so the Lutheran... Movement developed as well. And the church really doesn't know what to do with Martin Luther. Uh, There are various uh, options available. Uh, They can excommunicate him, which they ultimately moved to. But many of the great intellectuals in Europe at that time, they don't know what to, to make of Martin Luther. Many of the intellectuals agree that the church needs reformation, small r of some kind. They can see that it's corrupt that its bureaucracy is sleazy, that the papacy needs to be cleaned up in some way. And there are many debates that are going on in Europe as to, well, what should this reform of the church look like? Should it be a cleaning up of the bureaucracy? or Should it be something more radical? Do we actually need to address some of the theology being taught by Rome at this particular moment in time? And chief among the intellectuals in Europe is a man called Desiderius Erasmus, from Rotterdam, the what would be called the Low Countries in those days, what we now call the Netherlands, Erasmus is probably the greatest intellectual of the 16th century. He's the man who uh, puts together, of course, or produces uh, a critical Greek text of the New Testament and paves the way for the Reformation in that way. Probably as much as anybody, Erasmus pioneered the study of biblical languages in the early 16th century. And he was a great, uh, he's what we call a humanist. Today, of course, we we tend to think of humanists as people like, you know, Richard Dawkins or Bertrand Russell or somebody like that. We associate the word humanism with man being the measure of everything. Humanism in the 16th century merely means a man of letters. Latin, literae, humaniores, humane letters. So Erasmus is a man of letters. He's a literary figure, a bright star in the literary firmament. And he knows that the church needs reforming and he's written various uh, uh, satirical pamphlets and books on the church, mocking the church for its excesses. And this of course leads to pressure being brought by the church on Erasmus from around about 1520, when Luther's becoming really, really controversial. Pressure starts to mount on Erasmus to to make it clear where he stands relative to Martin Luther. And he's asked fairly early on, you know, what what do you think of Martin Luther? And he makes uh, a comment that unfortunately comes back to to haunt him. And he says, uh, the only problem with Luther is he's attacked the monks' bellies and the Pope's excesses. And this comment, of course, will be used by his enemies to say, well, so Erasmus is with Luther. Erasmus is a heretic. Luther, of course, excommunicated in 1520 and then tried at this remarkable uh, imperial gathering at Worms uh, in 1521. In my office at Westminster, I have this magnificent uh, porcelain beer growler which has uh, a painting of Luther at the Diet of Worms on it. And uh, my first, uh, I started the tradition this year. I've invented a tradition. Uh, My first Reformation lecture each year at Westminster, I will go in and I will slam the beer growler down on the desk at the front and I will say, this is what it's all about. Luther, beer, and God's word. Uh, It actually connects with a famous statement that Luther made when he was asked... um, he was sitting around with his, he was sitting with his friend Nicholas von Amsdorff in, in the pub one day, and somebody said to him, uh, Martin, uh, Dr. Martin, how come the Reformation's been so successful?" And he says, "I don't know. I he said, "I just sit around in the pub drinking beer with my friend Amsdorff, and God's word is out there doing it all." Uh, he also in one of his love letters to his wife and I'm not sure how this fits with what Greg has been telling us about husbands and wives loving each other uh, he does write this infamous love letter to his wife who was a, she was a remarkable home brewer uh, my wife has no ability in the home brewing department unfortunately um, his wife is a remarkable home brewer and he wrote her a love letter in which he, uh, he recommends that she brews a particular kind of beer for him because it always gives him at least three bowel movements in a morning uh, when he drinks this beer <laughs> Uh, and I'm not sure if that's entirely consistent with uh, Paul's teaching in Ephesians on husbands and wives. But anyway, Luther, I don't know how he even got on that, but it's kind of fun to tell the story. Uh, Luther is becoming more and more controversial. Pressure is being brought on Erasmus to declare himself relative to Luther. And once Luther has been excommunicated, and once he's been tried by the empire and the two great powers in Europe mainland Europe have sided against him, the Church and the Holy Roman Empire have both decided that he's an outlaw, Luther really is a man with a price on his head. And anybody who sides with him is going to be somebody with a price on their head as well. So Erasmus, by the mid-1520s, Erasmus has got to make it clear where he stands relative to Luther. And Erasmus then, in 1524, publishes a book entitled, A Diatribe on Free Will. It's one of those books that is famous because of the response it provokes. Luther will respond in 1525 by writing a book on the bondage of the will. It's a slightly misleading English translation. The the Latin is de servo arbitrio, which means on enslaved judgment is probably more accurate. Uh, uh, translation. Arbitrium in Latin is not quite the same as will in English. It carries context, uh, context of moral judgment about it. If you think of arbitration, it comes from the same root as, as arbitrium. Luther publishes his great response on the bondage of the will. And it's this that is really, uh, when Luther is, is writing much later in life, on the bondage of the will is one of the few books that he thinks he's written, that's actually still worth reading. I think he's being exceptionally modest. He also says in that that uh, he thanks Erasmus for focusing in on the issue of the will. And he he makes this remarkable statement that all of his other enemies have bothered him with trivia. He says, they've bothered me with trivia about the papacy and indulgences and things like this. Only you, Erasmus, he said, only you have seen the hinge on which everything turns. The issue of the bondage of the will. And that has led, uh, certainly uh, in the way the bondage of the will has been received in the Christian church, That the book, we, we tend to think of it as a, a treatise on predestination, on the will being bound by sin uh, in such a way that human beings cannot, of their own efforts, seek after and reach out to God. And it certainly is that, that the book certainly does deal with that issue. But the book works. It's a a complex polemic. The battle between Erasmus and Luther is on a whole series of issues. And one of the most important issues it addresses is the nature of Scripture itself. In other words, on the bondage of the will only deals with the bondage of the will in, in part of it. There are great chunks of the work that deal with other very important doctrinal issues as well. And at the heart of Erasmus' attack on Luther is his objection to a statement that Luther made in 1520. When Luther says this, and, and, and Erasmus zeroes in on this in his diatribe on free will, Luther writes this in his assertion of the articles. The meaning of scripture, he says, is in and of itself so certain, accessible and clear that scripture interprets itself and tests, judges and illuminates everything else. The meaning of Scripture is in and of itself so certain, accessible, and clear that Scripture interprets itself and tests, judges, and illuminates everything else. That is a wonderful statement of what we might call Protestant doctrine of Scripture. Scripture is fundamentally clear. The the basic message is clear. And if there's a tough passage of Scripture, you interpret it first and foremost by connecting it to clearer passages of Scripture, Erasmus goes straight after this. He objects very strongly to this. In contrast, he revels in the fact that Scripture is obscure and is not clear. There are secret places, he says, in the Holy Scriptures into which God has not wished us to penetrate more deeply. And if we try to do so, then the deeper we go, the darker and darker it becomes by which means we are led to acknowledge the unsearchable majesty of the divine wisdom and the weakness of the human mind. What Erasmus is saying there is God has revealed himself in an utterly obscure way in order that when you come to scripture and find it totally confusing and obscure, you will be awed. You will be awed by the greatness of God and your own smallness before him. Now we need to to backtrack a bit and, and set a little bit of context, because what's happening in this clash between Erasmus and Luther, I would suggest, is a clash between two fundamentally different understandings of what Christianity is. If You set Erasmus' work in the context of his wider work, we can see that what we're really dealing with is, it's not a, a debate about fine points of theology here, there are two fundamentally different understandings of Christianity at play. Looking at Erasmus's theology as a whole, a number of uh, characteristics emerge very quickly. The first, and perhaps the most significant is, Erasmus has a strong preference for practical morality over doctrinal faith. What Erasmus talks about quite often in his writings is the philosophy of Christ. Philosophia Christi. The philosophy of Christ. And what is that? It's essentially understanding Christ as a good example to follow. Christianity is, Erasmus would, would say, if he was alive today, I think, essentially a way of life, not a set of beliefs. If you think about that, of course, that means, immediately means that you'll have less place for, for Christian doctrine. Doctrine's not so important as the basic practical precepts that are taught in Scripture. You can compare Erasmus, I think, uh, very, uh, he, he's very close in his understanding of Scripture to various modern movements that play up Christianity as a way of life. A few years ago, the emergent church or the emerging church movement was, was very popular. One of the sort of catchphrases that emerged then, sorry about the pun, uh, that they used, shall we say, uh, was Christianity is not a set of doctrines, it's a way of life. What was so stunning was that this was being presented as if it was some sort of new and original insight. problem with being a church historian is you do get very jaded and cynical because every time somebody comes along with some brilliant new insight, you immediately remember where you read about it happening 300 years ago. Uh, and quite often, you know, you compare a guy like Brian McLaren with Desiderius Erasmus and there's no doubt about who the more sophisticated thinker is. Uh, The errors get repeated. They just become more and more banal in the way they're expressed and the way in which they are argued.
1: (laughs) And he's absolutely right. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt the reform guy. Let's continue.
0: Four. But modern movements which play up Christianity as a way of life, very similar to Erasmus, because often they have a distaste for doctrine. Doctrine is seen as something that gets in the way. And quite often, it's very interesting that such movements also, therefore, don't place much emphasis upon the doctrinal teaching in Scripture. And the problem of that, of course, is that Scripture seems quite doctrinal a lot of the time. And they accompany it with a view of Scripture that, hey, it's really pretty obscure. But you'll find in a lot of the sort of postmodern Christian movements that emphasize Christianity as a way of life, there is a correlative understanding, a corollary uh, in their understanding of Scripture as basically obscure. You can't construct doctrine from Scripture because it's obscure. But you can get the basic example of Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. You can get that basic stuff out of it. You also tend, and this was Erasmus's point. Erasmus was constantly pushing Luther and saying, "You know, the more you emphasise doctrine, the more divisive you're going to be." Yes, Erasmus could see there were problems in the church, but he was never going to leave the church. He's never going to leave the church. He's not going to separate over doctrine, and because he saw doctrine as fundamentally divisive. Luther, you're trying to produce these precise definitions. And when you produce these precise definitions, you're going to find yourself dividing from people. Doctrine divides. Doctrine divides. That's not a modern idea. That's one you can trace back to Erasmus. Unfortunately, of course, if you'll just flick open, I won't say your pew Bibles, and I won't give you a page reference, but you've got a Bible. Turn to to Romans, and I've... Reliably informed that I didn't steal anyone's Bible this morning, there are what I would call pew Bibles out there. Uh, you just you have the Bibles, you just don't have the pews. That's the. Uh, um, if you turn to Romans sixteen, very important passage. And you turn. You know, we talked about you know Bible doctrine dividing rather than uniting, and often it also connects. Another of the the sort of modern cliches that's used is. Belonging before believing. You know, belonging before believing, or even belonging rather than believing. Again, underlying that is the idea that doctrine is somehow something, or precise definitions are somehow getting in the way of what the church should be. Well, this is what Paul says in Romans 16, verse 17. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, uh, to watch out for those who cause divisions. And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Notice what Paul's saying there. Who are the divisive people in Rome? The divisive people are the people who've gone from the doctrine they've been taught. They don't belong because they don't hold to the doctrine. So there are all sorts of problems I think, with the Erasmian trajectory of Christianity. And I think it has potent connections with the kind of Christianity we see being advocated in some quarters today. And I said those buzzwords, Christian, or phrases. Christianity is a way of life, not a set of doctrines. Doctrine divides, all very attractive as phrases, all very counter what the Apostle Paul teaches in the New Testament. That's Erasmus's position. For Luther, Luther's understanding of Christianity is very, very different. For Luther, what drives him more than anything else is an acute sense of his own unworthiness before God. Where can I find a gracious God? That's the burning question that drives Luther in the early years of his career. The only place he can find a gracious God, he comes to the conclusion, is to find one externally. He needs the word from outside. He's been taught by his medieval masters that sin is like a wound or a weakness. And therefore you need to be healed or you need to be made strong. From reading Paul, he comes to the conclusion, no, sin is death. And if you're dead, you don't need to be healed, you need to be resurrected. And how are you resurrected? You're resurrected by being called from the tomb by God himself, like Lazarus was. You need a word from the outside. That's where you find a gracious God. You find God to be gracious in Christ. Because there God grasped humanity. There God came down to earth. There he descended into death. There he rose again. It's in Christ that you find that external word. Where do you find Christ now for Luther? In the word written in the word preached and in the sacraments attached to the word preached. So what has Christianity become for Luther? Well, Christianity is understanding who you are in the context of who God is. And that's why Christianity for Luther is in a doctrinal. I think we can, uh, you know, doctrine can be used in a very bad way. And there's the, the, the NRA's phrase, of course, which you're all very familiar with, I guess, and don't know if they still use it, but the idea that you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, I would want to suggest to you that doctrines don't kill people, people kill people. Doctrine itself is, is very good, because what is doctrine? Doctrine is ultimately a description
1: of reality.
0: Primarily a description of God, And then in the context of that description of God, a description of creation. The question becomes, of course, why would you not want to be precise in the way you describe God? If your identity...
1: this This is so good. Oh, man.
0: identity depends upon who God is. Surely we want to be as precise as we can in describing God. And for Luther, for Luther, the problem is I need to know where God is gracious. I need to know who I am in the context of God. And therefore, I need doctrine. I need somebody to describe precisely to me who God is and who I am before him. And Luther divides doctrine really into two sort of uh, 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 basic halves, and um, it's somewhat simplistic, but I say to students at Westminster, if you bear this in mind when you're preaching, you'll never go entirely, you'll never go far wrong. Luther sees doctrine as law or gospel. Law is a description of God in his holiness, and the demands he makes upon his creature as being holy, and the gospel is a description of God as he's promised to be to us in Christ, that demands a response of faith. But both of these things connect to what Luther calls assertion and contrary to Erasmus who wants to say, you know, Christianity is just a way of life. The doctrine is secondary or peripheral, or even irrelevant at points. Luther says this, nothing is more familiar or characteristic among Christians than assertion. And then he pushes even further. He says, take away assertions, and you take away Christianity. I think that's what Paul's saying in Romans 16. What have these divisive people done? They've taken away the assertions. That's what's made them divisive. And of course, Paul says, with such have nothing to do. So for Luther then, scripture is, uh, Christianity is essentially doctrinal. And this points him to the essentially doctrinal nature of preaching. What is preaching? Preaching is the expression of doctrinal truths. It's an accurate and precise description of who God is. Not just as a lecture, I talked about this last night. But an accurate and precise description of who God is and what he's done that then pressed home on the individual in terms of the demands it makes upon us because of who we are in the context of God and I think that's very clear from uh, the Apostle Paul. Again, it's one of my favorite parts of all scripture, but First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. What does Paul say there? He says, uh, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When the cross is preached, when the doctrine of the cross is preached, it defines who people are. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 is really saying there is a dividing line that runs down the middle of humanity and it connects to the cross. And the doctrine of the cross and how you respond to that fundamentally determines who you are. You may not like doctrine, but your identity is doctrinal because it's the teaching of the cross and your response to that that defines whether you're perishing. Or whether you are rising to newness of life.
1: All right, we're going to pause right there, and we're going to pay some bills. Fantastic lecture. Oh, man, is this good. I might have to put this in regular rotation here at Fighting for the Faith. Anyway, um, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. it, it's a visual age and the old bible is impractical and irrelevant but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth if you're tired of all those words like atonement sin justification and all that deep stuff about god look no further announcing the massage a new bible version that puts you and your personal needs central Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, The Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of The Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in your face, uncompromising, and And pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of the sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit FightingForthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of twenty eleven, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering you'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it download it and begin reading it immediately this is not a book that you're going to want to miss and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your in your library this is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again it's that good so what are you waiting for get your copy today Alright, we're back Warning, false doctrine does not describe true spiritual reality Only sound doctrine does that Need to remind you all fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you and that's right I've said it a million times now here's the deal I want I want to let you all know that we are I'm very encouraged by the fact that we are getting a a, a pretty substantial um response to the fact that uh, we need 350 new crew members now uh and and you know we're in the middle of a drive for 350 new crew members here in the month of May now to let you know kind of where we're at um well uh we are we are about 20% of the way there to our goal and it's more than halfway through the month of May. So, you know, <clears throat> thankfully uh many of you have been generous and have uh, been giving us uh donations above and beyond uh, the uh the crew membership which are it's, it's going to make us help it's going to help us meet budget this month. We haven't done it yet, but we're on our way to doing that. Um, in order to meet our budget, though, in the long term, we definitely need to add um, more people to uh, the, the support Fighting for the Faith on a monthly basis by joining our crew. The way you do that, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see the two friendly yellow buttons that are there on the homepage. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course— if you'd like to make a one-time contribution and specify the amount, you do that by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And uh, hopefully tomorrow we're going to be talking, uh, we'll have more details on our uh, T-shirt bake sale to uh, help us uh, make budget for this month. I have no idea what we're going to do for next month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully we'll get to our goal of 350 new crew members. So if you don't already... Support us by um, being a member of our crew. Then please do so because uh, in order to make our budget uh, in you know in the next couple of weeks we definitely need to uh, we need more people to join our crew. So anyway, you, you got the you got what I'm saying. There's benefits, as perks. If you join our crew before the end of May, you get a copy of our new book, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners. Uh, by the way, the, the feedback we're getting on the book is just fantastic. The people are really, really really uh, being having their eyes open profoundly to uh, what the Scriptures teach. It reads like a lay-level commentary on the Passion passages in the uh, New Testament uh, regarding Jesus' sufferings. So anyway, you get what I'm saying. So let's get back to our edition of Fighting for the Faith today. We got Carl uh, Truman uh, delivering his lecture on the clarity of Scripture, uh, talking about Martin Luther and uh, and uh, the clarity of Scripture. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Carl Truman and the balance of his lecture here we go.
0: Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 is really saying there is a dividing line that runs down the middle of humanity and it connects to the cross. And the doctrine of the cross and how you respond to that fundamentally determines who you are. You may not like doctrine, but your identity is doctrinal because it's the teaching of the cross and your response to that that defines whether you're perishing or whether you're rising to newness of life. Of course, this issue of assertion and the necessity of assertion immediately points us to the nature of Scripture. Erasmus wants to argue that Scripture is obscure. It's so obscure that one cannot have certainty. Therefore, one remains in the Catholic Church because one wouldn't want to stake one's life on uncertainty. So stay in the Catholic Church, keep your fingers crossed, and hope for the best. That's essentially what Erasmus says in his book. But Luther argues against this by saying, no, Scripture is essentially perspicuous. Scripture is essentially clear. Erasmus, of course, would also say you need the church to interpret scripture for you. Luther agrees, but what he does is he redefines the church in the context of the debate. And I want to talk now briefly, first of all, about Luther's uh, changing, changing the understanding of the church and then how he articulates his notion of perspicuity. For Luther, the church is redefined primarily as those, all those who are united with Christ. That's a very radical move in the, in the 16th century. For Luther's Catholic opponents, the church is institutional. Its authority devolves from Rome. There is a sacramental context in which the church is understood. The priest is absolutely vital. It's why excommunication in the Middle Ages would be so devastating. Because if you're excluded from the visible church, if you're excluded from the sacramental system, you have no access to grace whatsoever. But for Luther, no, the church can't be defined primarily as an institution. It must be defined first and foremost as those who are united to Christ by faith. Erasmus, of course, challenges Luther and says, well, do you really believe that God would have allowed the church to have existed in such error for so many generations. Luther responds by saying, but the church is not that which you think it is, Erasmus. The church is that which is led by the Spirit of God in Christ. The church, Luther says, is infallible because the church is the sum total of all of those who follow God's revelation. The scholars, the popes, the cardinals to whom you point, Erasmus, are not the Church. For Luther, the word itself stands before the church and creates the church. This is reflected in Luther's uh, reconfiguring in many ways of uh, uh, pastoral education in the 16th century. For Luther, it becomes critical that pastors wrestle with the original languages of Scripture that the primary focus in pastoral education is on a rigorous understanding of what Scripture says. Luther, of course, uh, I I said to students at Westminster, you must remember that the 16th century is somewhat analogous in some ways to Eastern Europe in 1989-1990. As the Reformation sweeps through Europe, it's not that the old guard are swept completely away and immediately replaced by something new. Yes, in Romania the Ceausescu's go, but... You can bet your life that below the top level in government, most of the government functionaries, they were communists last week, they're capitalists this week. They remain in place. Otherwise, you'd have complete social breakdown and chaos. So Luther also uh, and his colleagues produce catechisms, little handbooks, so that the ignorant clergy who are in place come to understand what scripture says. But what goes on at the Reformation is a massive reconfiguration of the church from looking to the priesthood and the sacraments to looking to the word as that which defines the church and the most dramatic examples uh, can be seen in church architecture if you go into a medieval cathedral your mind will immediately be carried to the altar because that's where your eyes go you walk through the door of Cologne Cathedral and your eyes immediately go to the far end of the church why? because that's where the magnificent altar is the architect knew his theology, and he focused your attention on the most important thing that happens there the action of the priest and the Lord's Supper or the Mass. You go to a Protestant cathedral like St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, where do your eyes go? They go to the center. And what's in the center? A magnificent pulpit. The church architect knew his theology, and he focuses your attention on that which is most important as soon as you enter. The Church. So for Luther, Erasmus, you need to reconfigure your understanding of the Church. The Church is constituted by the Word. Secondly, Luther asserts what he calls the, the perspicuity of Scripture, and we need to spend a few moments unpacking this. First of all, it's important for Luther that Scripture is perspicuous because his understanding of salvation is that salvation comes from grasping a promise. And in order to grasp a promise, various things need to apply. If I say to my uh, uh, my kids, if you mow the lawn for me while I'm away in New Mexico this weekend, I'll give you $25. I'm making a sort of promise. I promise I'll give you $25. For my sons to go out and mow the lawn, numerous things have to be true. They have to understand what I say to them. If I said it in Dutch or Latin or German, it would have no good. It would incomprehensible to them they have to understand what I'm saying but they also have to understand something about who I am if I've made this promise a dozen times before and I've never delivered on it even if they understand the words they have no reason to get off their backsides and go out and mow the lawn for me and I'm just trying to con them cajoling them into doing something so Luther has this understanding of salvation that it is grasping God's promise And that requires that the promise itself is easily understandable and that you have knowledge of the person promising. When you think about that relative to scripture, well, what does that mean? It means, well, the promise is straightforward. Secondly, you need to know something about the promiser. And the great thing about the Old Testament is what? We see time and again, God is the one who delivers on his promise. When you hear the word preached on a Sunday and somebody says, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven, and on the last day you will be raised up. You have every reason in the world to believe that because God has proved himself faithful to his promises so often throughout history. And How do we know that? Because the Bible teaches it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So perspicuity is very important for Luther because the promise has to be grasped and the promiser has to be known and trusted. If the scriptures are obscure, then there can be no assurance of salvation. And it's very interesting, of course, that in Catholicism, there is no assurance in the way that Protestants understand assurance. You can have moral certainty, in Catholicism essentially means that if you do the right things, you follow the teaching, you take the sacraments, you have a reasonable chance of getting through at the end. But that is not what the Heidelberg Catechism talks about in question one. The Heidelberg Catechism talks about this joyous certainty. I know, I know the reason for the hope that lives within me. So Luther then, perspicuity is very, very important to him and he distinguishes, he again goes on to talk about perspicuity and he actually distinguishes it into, into two halves. He talks about internal perspicuity and this is really the, the faith relation. He says this, If you speak of internal perspicuity, the truth is that nobody who has not the Spirit of God sees a jot of what is in the Scriptures. Nobody who has not the Spirit of God sees a jot of what is in the Scriptures. At one point, Luther's asked, uh, you know, what's the difference between what you believe and what the Pope believes? And Luther will say, well, actually, we believe a whole heap of stuff the same. We believe the Apostles' Creed. Pope believes the Apostles' Creed. God is one. God created. Jesus came down, took flesh, died, rose again. Will come again to judge the living and the dead. So wherein lies the difference, Dr. Martin? The difference lies in the fact Luther says, I believe Christ died for me, was done for me. There is that internal existential conviction that Christ, the story of Christ is not just a story out there somewhere like a story of Napoleon or Robin Hood or Nelson or somebody. Christ's story connects directly to me. And that's what Luther's talking about when he says internal perspicuity. Internal perspicuity means the Spirit takes those words and applies them directly to us. So we grasp them and understand them in a personal way. And Luther here is really uh, reacting against, uh, in the context of his time, against what we'll call Anabaptist and and Spiritualist approaches. Uh, Spiritually, we think of spiritualism now as kind of weird old ladies with Ouija boards and this kind of thing. The 16th century, scholars refer to, we uh, talk about spiritualist churches. What they mean there is those who emphasize the Spirit and not the Word. And what Luther wants to guard against is those who say, you know, Jesus loves, uh, you know, you ask me how I know He lives, He lives within my heart. I just have this direct guiding from the Spirit on it. Luther wants always to maintain the importance of the word. And so he says the spirit binds us to the word. connects very closely to what Jim Packer says when he talks about the spirit as being a spotlight. In the 1980s when I was converting, you know, the charismatic movement was the, the big issue then. And I remember being very helped by something Jim Packer wrote where he talked about the sign of the spirit's presence in a church is that people talk about Jesus a lot. Because the Spirit witnesses to Jesus. So it's like you go to a football game. And one of the questions today actually was, do I consider soccer a real sport? Well, soccer's a bad name anyway. It's actually football because we do actually use our feet when we play it um, pretty <laughs> typically. Uh, but I would say rugby is a more real sport than, uh, than soccer stroke football. But you go to a football game, either American football or British football, and if the floodlights aren't working, it's hopeless. If it's an evening game, the floodlights aren't working, it's hopeless. But if the floodlights are working, you don't sit and look at the floodlights. You don't even notice they're there. You look at the game. And what Luther's trying to do here is guard against those who emphasize the Spirit. When actually what the Spirit does in terms of this internal perspicuity is shine light on the Word. So internal perspicuity, he says, is is that which the Spirit, the power of the Spirit gives us to grasp the significance of the word for us. And it also helps avoid pure intellectualism. Simply knowing what the text means for Luther is not knowing what the text means. Christian knows what the text means at a deeper level than just understanding the words. But then Luther talks about another form of perspicuity external perspicuity or external judgment. And here he's referring to what he calls public aspects of interpretation, vocabulary, grammar, syntax. If you've got a a Bible and you read it with a non-Christian friend and let's say you're going through the Gospel of Mark uh, and you probably choose the Gospel of Mark because Luther would tell you some bits of Scripture are more perspicuous than others. You probably don't want to witness to a non-Christian friend through the book of Revelation. It's not as perspicuous as the book of Mark. You're going through the book of Mark with them and you're dealing with Jesus' baptism and the healings, etc., that Jesus is performing and his death and resurrection and your non-Christian friend will understand the text. If they understand English or French or whatever translation you're using, they will understand the text. They'll know the storyline because they understand the vocabulary, the syntax, the grammar, the idioms being used. And that's what Luther means by external perspicuity that the Bible, in terms of its basic central message, is clear and has a message that is understandable by all. Whether they choose to accept it or reject it is another matter. But the basic message of the Bible is clear as far as Luther is concerned. It does connect nicely. I mean, we, again, we, when we think of perspicuity, because we're you know, modern individualists, we tend to often think of perspicuity as something that applies to us as individuals. When Luther thinks about the perspicuity of Scripture, though I think by and large, he's thinking of a corporate setting. When he thinks about the perspicuity of Scripture, where is Scripture most perspicuous? Where many Christians are gathered together. Where the word is proclaimed. And they can test what's being said by the text of Scripture in front of them. There is this corporate dimension to Luther, uh, to Luther's understanding of perspicuity that connects very closely to the proclamation of the word. The word is more perspicuous to more people than it is to an individual. And that works both across the ages as well as we might say synchronously. Think about it. When your pastor prepares a sermon, We have a big thing in Protestant evangelicalism that we don't do tradition. We're not into tradition. Actually, Luther would say the perspicuity of Scripture requires that we connect with tradition. Why? Because we want as many views from as many saints as we can get on passages of Scripture in order to fine-tool our own comprehension of what's going on there. And your pastor may say, I'm just a no creed, but the I'm just a Bible-man. But if he doesn't use commentaries when he's preparing his sermons, then he's doomed. He is doomed to the limits of his own ignorance. And you as his congregation are doomed to the limits of his own ignorance as well. For Luther, yes, Scripture is perspicuous. And the more Christians who engage with it, the more perspicuous it is. Why do we use commentaries? We use commentaries because listening to the thoughts and opinions of other saints, of other people who've wrestled with the text, actually make the text more perspicuous to us in many ways. Even, I said, to students at the seminary, it's often important to read people we disagree with and people who get it wrong. Because even sometimes engaging with somebody who gets something wrong can sharpen and clarify our own opinions and our own insights into things. So for Luther, the perspicuity of Scripture externally means, one, the basic message of Scripture is clear, but secondly, it also is an encouragement to engage with the communion of saints, as far as Luther is concerned. always reading widely. He believed in the perspicuity of Scripture and therefore he wanted to see how that perspicuity had played out for others in order that he could draw on their wisdom. And I've got a note here, I said, we have a symbiotic relationship in Luther between individuals and the church in interpretation. Individuals know the truth through the word. They test the proclamation of the church. But the church also has the truth and tests and rebukes individuals. There is what we might call a hermeneutical circle or perhaps better, hermeneutical spiral between the church corporate and, individuals. and one of the interesting practices that emerges in the, in the Reformation, particularly in the Reformed wing, the practice of prophesying starts in Zurich and it becomes very, very popular uh, in England in the late 16th and early 17th century. And a prophesying was when the local pastors would get together and they would choose a passage of scripture and they would take it in turns at this gathering to preach on the passage of scripture. They would start with the most junior guy there and they would end with the most senior man. But the idea was, yes, Scripture's perspicuous. So as we each come and wrestle with the text and we hear each other wrestling with the text, it opens up yet further to us. That's why I come to hear Greg tonight. I've read Genesis 2 and 3 before. It's more perspicuous to me now, having heard him speak on Genesis 2 and 3 and connecting it to Ephesians, than it was earlier in the day. Albeit that its basic message was already clear to me because I could read the story and understand essentially what's going on. Both forms of perspicuity, internal and external, have the same objective basis. They both connect to Scripture. Scripture for Luther is authoritative because they contain Christ. The meaning is available to grammatical linguistic analysis, must be related to Christ. And where tough passages are found, they must be connected to clear passages. It's very interesting if you talk to a, a Jehovah's Witness, they'll often try to tell you, that, you know, that the context of the Gospel of John is the book of Revelation. You kind of flip things on their head. You go, you put the clear passages and you have to understand them in the context of the obscure passages. But Luther, no. There are clear passages in Scripture. And on the basis of those, you work on the tougher passages. And we have Peter. We have Peter's precedent for that, where Peter says in the letters of Paul, there are many things that are hard to understand. The same Peter who can also say, you know, I was there on the mountain. I saw it all go down. But I have something much more certain now. I have the oracles of God spoken by God himself. And Luther will also say, he goes on to say he thinks that the key doctrines are plainly taught. As I said in the Q&A this afternoon, I think the idea that uh, Christians are you know, irreconcilably disagreeing over all of the things that are essential for salvation has been massively overplayed. Yeah, Christians disagree on quite a lot, very little of which actually touches on the essentials of salvation, much of which touches on things that are essential to the well-being of the church. I don't want to minimize these things or say... Bat- disagreements over baptism are not important. We're saying we should simply brush them away. They have no importance. They're important for the well-being and the constitution of the church. They're not essential for salvation. Romans 10 sets the bar pretty low for what is vital and essential for salvation. All the articles, Luther says, which Christians hold should be fully certain to themselves, and they are supported against opponents by such plain and clear scriptures that's to stop all their mouths so that they can say nothing in reply. So, uh, I haven't got time. There are a number of uh, presuppositions behind Luther's position which would be contentious today and uh, would need to be addressed. I would uh, uh, point those of you who want to, to look into the perspicuity of Scripture issue in more detail to a very good book by a friend of mine called Mark Thompson, A Clear and Present Word which is a, it's a, it's an interesting book. It's, uh, it's published by, I'm not sure it's published by in the US, it's published by IVP in the UK. And the first part of that book, Mark makes, it, makes the case for Scripture not being perspicuous at all, using modern literary theory. And then in the second half of the book, he demolishes those arguments. He sets himself a very high hurdle to jump over, and he successfully jumps over it. Luther, of course, assumes that there is such a thing as the canon. He assumes that this canon has theological coherence and he also assumes that translation, a translation that can bring over the basic message of Scripture is a relatively straightforward exercise. As I say, all three of those things would be debated today but I think Mark Thompson gives adequate answers to the criticisms on all three fronts. So to summarise then, just in conclusion, Luther on the Perspective of Scripture For Luther, assertions are necessary because doctrinal assertions supply the content of faith and are the essential part of the relation of the believer to God. It's why Paul spends so long in his epistles outlining doctrine and warning people about those who are divisive because they have stepped away from true doctrine. Secondly, assertions demand a perspicuous scripture. Internally perspicuous scripture with reference to the individual. We must be able to grasp and truly believe the promise and know the one who is making the promise. And external, with reference to the church's corporate proclamation. When your minister stands up on a Sunday, he doesn't simply describe to you some ineffable mystical experience he's had that you simply cannot test by public criteria. He expounds scripture and you can hold him to account on the basis of the scripture that he is expounding. And thirdly, related to those, scriptural interpretation has both an individual and corporate dimension. Perspicuity does not mean that any Tom, Dick and Harry can pick up the Bible and understand every passage perfectly in the scriptures. But it does mean that as a church, wrestling corporately with the scripture, the essential message of the gospel will be clear and the obscure passages will become increasingly clear as we wrestle with them as a body over time.
1: Amen and amen. Fantastic word from Dr. Carl Truman. Just ridiculously masterfully done. Props to him and thank the Lord for raising up men like him to help us wrestle with these truths. All right, I need to remind you again, fighting for the faith. This is Listener Support Radio. If you're not already a member of our crew, we're about 20% of the way to our goal of getting 350 crew members in the month of May. If you're not already a, a member of our crew, we definitely need your help. The way you uh, remedy this situation is visit our website, FightingForTheFaith.com. When you get there, you'll see the two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew, and after you join our crew, I'll send you a link to our, our latest book, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners. It's a fantastic book and one that you will find very beneficial and edifying as we wrestle with the Scriptures together regarding Christ and his sufferings for us, sinners. Okay, so what'd you think? Oh, man, I thought it was fantastic. I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.